Hello, and welcome to Simplifying Shelter Behaviour with me, Tom Candy, the go-to podcast for tips and tricks for working with animal behaviour in a shelter or rescue environment. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 8 of Simplifying Shelter Behaviour. Tonight we're going to be looking at what scent work can do to help us support our shelter dogs, and to help us do that we've got the amazing Jack Fenton. How's things going, Jack? Really good, thank you, Tom. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm really excited to talk about scent work. Oh, thanks for coming on. I know how passionate you are about it. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So uh, I primarily work with kind of reactive, anxious, fizzy dogs. Uh, and I do that in a number of ways. I do one-to-ones, I do classes. But one of the key kind of areas that I focus on when working with these dogs is nose work, which is kind of my umbrella term for a whole host of different and kind of no specific disciplines. So I do a bit of search and rescue with some of the dogs I work with. We do a little bit of tracking. We do some scent work, which is like the drug detection stuff, which I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, and a little bit of man training, which on lead search and rescue as well. And I found that actually when you're getting dogs engaging with their nose and when you've given them a job and kind of getting them processing the environment, the results from a kind of behavior modification perspective, but also quality of life perspective, drastically shift. The amount of dogs that I've worked with by just getting them to do a little bit of man trailing or just searching for food or hunting for a tennis ball, seeing their kind of personality shift, seeing their body language relax and seeing how they kind of come into their own is, in my opinion anyway, one of the most effective ways of building confidence in dogs um, and kind of giving them an outlet and a focus while also being quite low cost, I suppose, is the term that I use and low effort too from a, from a people point of view, because obviously we all have a limited amount of time in the day and some a lot of the exercises I get my students to do, you know, will take up maybe three to five minutes of their day, but their dogs still get all of the benefits and all of the bonuses so i love it for a whole host of reasons but yeah so i primarily work with those um and i started off my career working with assistance dogs so i used to work with dogs that would help uh, physically disabled people uh, autistic people children with down syndrome things like that so i've kind of started off very much focused on a kind of rigid training i suppose and kind of building dogs up for something and now I've very much transitioned into helping dogs kind of cope with life through using their nose Brilliant. And obviously there's a range of amazing people doing scent work at the minute, but I think one of the main reasons I wanted to invite you on is you are sort of using it as part of that behavior modification uh, yeah. tool rather than just for competitions or for fun, yeah. which I know you work with as well. But what got you into scent work initially? I, I wish that from a marketing point of view, I wish I could tell like this really dramatic story about how I fell in love with those work. And it was like the best thing ever. I've got to be honest, a friend of mine <laughs> was going on a tracking instructor's course um, and said, hey, do you want to come along? I said, yeah, sure. And I brought my little French bulldog, Kevin. And at the time, my knowledge of nose work was, I think, very much what most people's is which is the idea that it's something that certain dog breeds can do right so we think when we think about scent work drug detection any form of nose work sports we tend to think of the typical dogs collies shepherds uh gun dogs things of that nature so i took him along partially because i thought it'd be interesting and also because i thought it'd be a bit funny um and i was actually blown away because he was able to keep up more or less with the malinois with the shepherds with the collies and had a really good time and from there what i found is that as i kind of expanded what i wanted to do with dogs i was coming up 
with roadblock after roadblock from an accessibility point of view, because there's always, especially with dog sports, there's lots of limitations. Your dog has to be a certain fitness level. They have to do a certain thing. And I found that actually the only criteria really for nose work is a dog having a sense of smell. All the others can play a little bit of a role, but we can adapt that going forwards. And as that kind of built, I realized that there are so many dogs who have been kicked out of classes, can't attend normal classes or just struggle in outside environments in general. And I realized that by using nose work, we could not only give them that outlook, but help build their confidence. And so that's kind of where my passion for it comes from, really, is the kind of consistent experiences that. I've not only witnessed from the dog's point of view, but also the caregivers I work with, because so many people will turn around and say, I didn't think my dog could do this, or the change in my dog is incredible, all by just getting them to use their nose in a specific way over a specific period of time, uh, which is why I champion it so much, because I think that there's nothing, there's nothing more powerful than a dog fixing themselves is really dramatic but a dog being the agent of their own change i suppose and so giving them that outlet with nose work is just really really cool so yeah it, it's a very undramatic story of me just going that looks like fun um but now it's kind of spawned into this huge passion of mine and i'm very lucky and very humble to work with so many incredible dogs who and so many incredible caregivers who listen to the guy who's like i'm gonna go hide in a bush and this is gonna make your dog like people and they go okay <laughs> and then it works so everybody wins yeah i mean i do really like the story of kevin because still one of my favorite uh research papers to date is from nathaniel hall who showed mm -hmm. that pugs outperformed german shepherds with certain scent work tasks so that was uh yeah something he wasn't expecting i think but just yeah. shows doesn't it how yeah. how important it is for all dogs and like you said all yeah. they really require is that sense of smell yeah absolutely so you've kind of mentioned some of the reasons that you really love it but like why do you think it is such an amazing important tool for it, us to utilize particularly when we think about dogs who are in a shelter environment sure i i think for me it comes down to three main areas the one is that it, it to not use it makes zero sense no matter the environment because it's their superpower it's so strong i always like to use the example that if we had the equivalent strength excuse me in our eyes that our dogs do in their noses naturally we would be able to see a stop sign really clearly on the moon right and that's without training too we're not talking about all the kind of really cool detection dogs or anything so just from that perspective why would we not use such a powerful tool when it's inbuilt we don't necessarily need to do a lot of training to get dogs to use it the second is what i touched on earlier especially in a shelter environment is time right like i a lot of the people that i work with they aren't necessarily limited on time, but their dog's ability to focus, their dog's ability to pay attention, and their kind of ability to stay under threshold is low, no matter how much we set up that environment. So having an activity and an exercise that these dogs can do in 30-second increments, minute increments, five minutes at most, while front-loading all of those benefits is just incredible. And the third thing as well, which is kind of similar to the time thing is set up. i got to be really honest with you, Tom. I'm quite lazy. I don't like doing stuff where I have to do a really formal setup where I have to put out lots of bits and pieces. There's elements of that that I do, but I want to be able to sit there and say to my students that the skill that we're working on here with your dog right now, you can do anywhere. And I do a lot of work with dogs finding coins. I also... We'll get onto this too, I imagine. I really, really push back on the notion, especially with scent work, so kind of like the drug detection stuff, that dogs need to be put on a certain scent to get the benefits. I'm going to be honest with you, Tom, ridiculous. Your dog will get the same benefits for searching for a bit of food or a tennis ball than they will clove or 
Kong or whatever. And that's not me taking away from the skill level of that or the fun. Lots of dogs I work with are on clothes. Lots of dogs I work with are on Kong. But for those dogs, especially in a shelter environment, when look, we, we don't have time to really put them on a scent, they will still get the same benefits for hunting for a bit of cheese or hunting for a toy or whatever it is, provided we set up the environment and provided we are focusing more on the act of searching more so than what they're searching for. So those are kind of the three reasons I would say for shelter uh, dogs, especially because at the end of the day, it's about using something that they can do already because uh, all dogs can smell. And actually, I'll give you a fourth reason, Tom, as well, just while I'm thinking about it. Um, obviously, in a shelter environment for some dogs, especially coming into that can be quite stressful, right? Even if, of course, so many wonderful shelters all across the world have really lovely environments, but to go into that shelter environment can still be stressful. And so in my experience, dogs just aren't using their nose as much in that environment. They're focusing on their other senses. So by just giving them time to use that nose and bring that sense back to where they are in the environment and kind of utilize it a bit more um, makes the situation better. And as I said, kind of gives agency back to them. Yeah, I think they're all really great points aren't they but i think the one that particularly resonated with me was number three like i think we have this idea in the head as you've already said that scent work is this really complicated thing but actually there's so many options that we've got to utilize that dog's nose and get them active in it that when time is and and sometimes resources are limited you can still see the benefit for that dog thousand percent so we've already said that you know, any dog can do this really without a huge amount of training, depending on what you're doing. But is there any particular dog that you think when you're working with private clients or that you've seen before where you think what like this type of dog would definitely really, really benefit from scent work? Or do you just think all dogs? Well, that's a good question. So I, I think all dogs definitely will. But there are certainly types of dogs that I work with that I go for some dogs, it's a hobby. For others, it's a lifestyle. Like they need this. So I suppose for me, there would be two types. The first is the dogs that I would label as fizzy. And these are dogs who have a lot of energy and maybe struggle with arousal around a whole host of different environments. It could be that they just can't really sit still. It could be that in outdoor environments, their kind of brain explodes. Whatever label we want to use, giving them something that they can channel that energy into. I call it controlled chaos because my goal with any dog Dog that I do nose work with is not to change their personality it's to tailor the nose work to their personality and so you will see some dogs I work with who they are controlled chaos because they'll search an area really thoroughly but they're moving like a million miles an hour but then after that you see them kind of settle and they get into this kind of more relaxed state so I definitely think for dogs that are really fizzy, really gung-ho, who need to express themselves, nose work is great in that department. And the other, to be honest, are the dogs who can't cope with a lot of pressure. So these are the dogs that maybe have a bit of trauma. These are the dogs who um, are feeling quite a lot of anxiety. And they um, we need to kind of get them doing something. We need to start kind of making progress with them. But it, it needs to be in a kind of hands-off, no-pressure environment. And so one of the things that I really love about nose work is how in lots of other behavior modification plans and, and sports as well, there's kind of a specific, we're always looking for a specific criteria to hit right we're always going this some of the dogs that i work with tom it will be the case that they will spend 
you know, three months working on one element of that chain. So I'll give you an example. There's a there's a um, overseas rescue I work with who, when I first started working with him, he'd come out of the car. And one of the things I should say to everybody listening as well is that um, I work primarily in public places. So we we're always in places with lots of stuff going on. Not always lots of stuff, but it's always it's not kind of secure fields or anything. And when we used to bring him out, um, even if there was nothing around, even if there was no noises or anything like that, he used to shake. And he used to struggle just being around that environment. And so we played this game uh, with his caregivers where the rule just was that they would take something that he liked, would go and stand off to the side or around a corner, and he would go and he would find them. And what we found with him is that actually he wasn't really bothered by the food. He wasn't really bothered by the toy. He just liked the act of that, literally the pattern of going, finding the person. He wouldn't even necessarily approach them. He would just stand by them. And that was the game for him for three months. As we progressed, we made it a bit harder so the person would hide a bit more deeply in the environment or we'd, or we'd add some more complexity in terms of maybe they'd walk slightly down one path and divert to the other. But they were not very long. They weren't very complex. And that's what he did for three months. And now he goes into any environment. He's super confident, super happy. And at this point, what we're working on is him going up to the caregivers and other people, because I'll hide from too, and taking food. And that's taken us three months. Now, if we were looking at that from a behavior modification plan perspective or a um, sports perspective, we would say, oh, no, because actually the way that this game is meant to be played is that the person does it and then they take the food. But that's not what he needed at the time. And there was never any pressure. All he had to do was play the game. And if he didn't want to play the game, we didn't have to. But just by giving that kind of low impact, low pressure environment of, look, we'll play this game with you, buddy. And if you want to play awesome, if not, that's all good. Um, he built that confidence. And we went for a dog who, no matter where he was taken out, unless it was his house, he would just be shut down to a dog who is now really comfortable in classes and can kind of go to any environment and chill out. And we've not actually got to the stage where we're, well, he's taking food now because um, he wants to now, but whatever. That's the amazing thing in my experience about nose work is that you can wo- focus on one element of it. And just go and go and go. I mean, I should say with him, by the way, that when when he was playing the game, um, he wasn't not taking food because he was stressed or anxious. He's just not a very foodie dog or a toy orientated dog in general. Um, but now he's kind of working with it, so that's good. But I, I think, I think for me, it comes down to the fact that for those types of dogs, it's very low pressure, and they can just get on and do an element of it, um, and they'll still get the results. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely amazing example, which I'm sure is going to resonate with a lot of our listeners. And I really like that notion of fizzy dogs, and particularly in shelter, I think we get a lot of that fizziness behaviour, exactly as you described. So it's it's a great, great choice that you made to select those. And I think you're totally right. I often use scent work as part of like introduction plans, particularly if a dog's been returned and it's an issue like resource guarding but we feel like it's because that relationship hasn't been there with that owner it's such a great tool to utilize for that dog to feel slightly less pressure because they're off doing something else but the owners will then feel that connection to the dog because they're doing something together so i think oh yeah perfectly fits into what i was expecting you to say all right there we go that's good (laughs) um so before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of some of the maybe more complicated scent work what's some sort of really easy scent-based games that you think shelter staff or volunteers can start dogs off on cool um so i've got three off the top of my head 
Um, and again, this depends on kind of what motivates the dog. The first one is just a really simple exercise um, that I use for tracking, which I call article loyalty building, which is effectively in tracking. The end, the point of it is that a dog will go and find an item that smells like the track layer, which tends to be an item of clothing. So a glove, a sock, something like that. Again, depending on the dogs. For some dogs, it's like a jacket or something. And one of the things that I've always been really interested about is that within that kind of article loyalty aspect and with that kind of building a positive association with that person's scent, I've actually used that with with dogs who have newly went into a home, for example, and maybe they're a little bit wary of the boyfriend or or one of the children in the house and stuff. And so they will do that article loyalty game, which is literally just you have the item. So will you say a glove, for an example, that smells like the person you put it on the ground and you just put food on it? Um, as the dog eats the food, after the dog has finished the food, more food appears and then a bit more and then a bit more. So we're just building an association. And then once we've done that for about 30 seconds a minute, we pick that glove up and we pop it away and then we give it back to you know the, the person that's either handled it or if it is that person's item, they just keep it on their person for a bit. And that sounds like it won't do a lot. But actually, in my experience with so many dogs, just building that positive association with someone's scent completely switches the dynamic. I'm not saying it's going to completely solve a dog who's nervous of a new person in the house or the dog's new to the house and the person there. I'm not saying it's going to solve the issue completely, but it almost provides really solid scaffolding for that relationship to grow and develop. So from a shelter perspective, I think it would be very interesting if there was a dog who was quite nervous of people, even if you had it be the case that, you know, rather than the person being there, popping the item down, staying there and dropping it on, like the example I just gave, even if it was just the case that the the item of clothing, one of one of the kennel hands or one of the assistants, whatever's item of clothing was popped in the in the kind of kennel and then food was deposited on it and the person left and we just built the association like that i think that could be really good just as a kind of general easy peasy thing you could also i suppose do the exact same thing with their food in general where just before you put their food bowl down it's just the item of clothing on the, the staff member that you want them to get used to so that that would be one thing i would say the second I play a little game called alphabet searches which is effectively where you have about three to five food items so i tend to use something squishy like cheese so you can stick it in and you try and draw a letter so a v for three or an m um for five and so it just what that kind of accomplishes is that it teaches the dog to search a small space really intensely which i quite like i like dogs to be able to work an area really intensely and focus in on it because it also ties them out um you can also do it without needing a lot of space either which is hugely important uh for shelters i can imagine in that way so that's important too um and also you develop in my experience a really good bond with the dog that you're doing it with because if you imagine that you've got kind of five hides out in a small space most dogs, if you go over and say, hey, check this out, and to kind of cue that behavior, I like to use a flick. And by flick, I mean that you kind of act actively flick the thing you want them to search. So you make contact with it, so like a wall or a fence or whatever it is. You do that, dog goes, oh, I smell some cheese or something like that. They start sniffing around. They eat the cheese. And you go, oh, my God, amazing. Well done. That's fantastic. This is awesome. This is great. And the dog goes, oh, my God, OK, I found the cheese. And then they either keep working and they find the other bits of cheese or you just go, awesome, buddy. Well done. And then you keep them going. So they not only get this kind of they not only get a reward for searching, but every time they do that, because it's such a short space of time, it builds that connection and bond with the person handling them and the people in the environment. 
one thing I love about Santmark as well, and I won't dwell on this too much, but one of the things I think is really interesting is that the environmental associations that are made are huge. So I have had dogs who are really nervous of people do those alphabet searches, for example, when there are other people in the environment just observing that the dog is a little bit wary of. By the end of a few of those searches or a workshop or something, they're completely fine with those people, even though the people have done nothing with them. So I like to use that as a way of not only really focusing the dog, but also building a nice association with different people in the environment as well. Um, and then once the dog has finished the food, you can either set up another set um, or you can move on to perhaps less in an area or, or something like that. But the other good thing about it is it doesn't take long. 30 seconds, 40 seconds to do it. Grab the dog. Dog can go do it. Um, dog can do it off lead or on lead again as well, depending on the environment that you're in and what you need to do. Uh, I also really like doing this with dogs that struggle with um, transportation like cars, because, again, you can kind of wedge the cheese or the food in different areas in the boot, whatever it is. And you can really vary it if we're going advanced. But that's a basic. And the third thing um, I find gun dog games really, really interesting. I really like gun dog games. Um, and I think that calling them gun dog games is a little bit unfair because obviously again any dog can play these games theoretically so all you need for this one is just a dog who kind of likes toys um and i have two variations i have a variation for a dog that is happy to be handled and played with and i have a variation for a dog that isn't happy to be handled and played with the one that with a dog that is happy to be handled and play with um i call it a restrained retrieve which is effectively where you have hold of the dog's collar harness you have a toy that they like you throw that toy and then there's an element of tension so when you feel tension in your hand when they go to pull you let them go so they go and they grab the toy you then move backwards and you call them and what they choose to do at that point completely up to them some dogs are work with parade and they just run around with their toy woo big party and you're just praising them and you go awesome well done buddy that's Excellent. And I like those dogs in some ways the best because you are effectively rewarding them and praising them for independence, which in my experience, especially with dogs that have come from shelters or rescues, promoting that level of independence while also having a connection, I think is really important. And the other thing is that you also get dogs who just bring the toy back and then they encourage a game. I especially like that for bull breeds too, because I think that with a lot of bull breeds, it tends to be the emphasis on on just the tugging which is fantastic but i like throwing in the go away grab the item and then the huge kind of comeback big party if you have a dog that is a little bit more nervous or doesn't like to be handled i would probably play um the variation that i would play would effectively be with like a food toy like a clam or even a kong as well you could theoretically do it with and i would have the dog kind of being able to see what you're doing but i'd show them the item whether it's from a distance or whatever it is and i'd literally go and i'd pop it down and then i might head off to the side and just whether the dog has any cues cue them or just even let them follow right and just put that kind of kong toy down that food toy down the dog then just goes and gets it. And again, what that dog chooses to do is entirely up to them. But it's a mini kind of search puzzle in the sense that if they stay where they are or they're behind a gate or whatever and they see you pop it down and then you come back and they go in, they're going to have to track for it. So they use their nose, they go and they find it. And then that, what they choose to do, some dogs will pick up the food toy, some dogs won't. But if they're not super bothered about interaction with a the person, they've still played that kind of search game. And at the end, they get to unpack that food toy, get that Kong and have that reward. So it provides an element of toy play and an element of tracking while also teaching the dog that following that person's scent is cool um, and they get a nice reward at the end. So 
those are kind of four, I suppose, depending on the variations that I would do just off the top of my head. And again, that one doesn't take long. Neither of those take long to set up. The first one of those where you throw the toy and the dog goes and gets it, it's five seconds if you've got a fizzy dog. If it's a dog that is a little bit more anxious, again, 30, 40 seconds overall. Maybe the dog takes a bit of time kind of slaloming to find the item. Um, and you can vary that last one by pretending to pop the item in different places too. And then actually popping it and then pretending to pop it in different places, going back, letting the dog through. It, and then they just have to search that area, too. So those would be the the main ones that I would say on like basic, basic level without a lot of prior training. Yeah, brilliant. I think they're really great examples. And, and like you said, it doesn't really sound like that's going to take much time at all from oh. a staff member point of view. But the the impact on those dogs is going to be really beneficial. So that's oh. awesome. So we've sent work, you know. If we think of, of the more sort of uh, formal scent work, like you said, work in scent work. Yes. We know that we, often you have the kind of two main types of indications for when the yeah. dogs found it. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between the two and what they are? Yes, absolutely. So you've got kind of two main ones. You've got active indications and passive indications. So for a shelter environment, maybe slightly controversial, uh, I would probably opt more for active indications over passive indications. Um, but an active indication is just when the dog directly interacts with the thing that they're finding. So when we think about that, that's a majority actually of nose work sports or anything that dogs get to use their nose. So search and rescue is in a lot of ways an active indication in the sense that they find the person and they will have an interaction with them and then go back to their um the handler and then it, that kind of turns into a passive indication but something like um the retrieve game that we just talked about that's an active indication because the thing that they're looking for the toy the food toy whatever it is they interact with they pick it up and they run around with it and that's their reward or they eat the food the alphabet searches that we were just discussing the consumption of food that's an active indication it's effectively anything that involves interaction with the scent with the thing that they're looking for. Passive indication, on the other hand, is the opposite. It's where they don't directly interact with the thing that they're, they're searching for. So when I think about that from a scent work perspective, a lot of scent work tends to be passive indications. So the dog will go be sniffing and let's say it's one of my students looking for a coin. They will go and they'll find the coin and they might do something called a nose hover, which is where they, shockingly enough, hover their nose over where their coin is and stare at it. Or they'll kind of find it and do a sit or they'll do a down. So there's not a direct interaction with the thing that they're looking for. Um, and again, different jobs have different needs it's all well and good a dog consuming um cheese and doing an active indication we wouldn't really want that for cocaine and i wouldn't particularly want a dog to retrieve a landmine so it's about that balance um again i don't really believe that there is one that is better than the other i think it depends on uh, timings times i think it depends on what the dog likes to do because if i've got like a gun dog who likes to retrieve things and we're doing tracking on uh, gun cardinal sin maybe i'd probably just have them bring the glove back or something like that because that's what they like to do um, and that's what they find reinforcing uh, but there's also some dogs as well that um, aren't toy motivated i find this a lot with overseas rescues where they're just not that bothered and so with them teaching them that that indication behavior that freeze that sit that down um they seem to really enjoy they seem to really get into it and kind of find the flow with it so it, it would entirely depend on the kind of dog in front of me but that's kind of the two that's the distinction between the two of them that's great and i think it's really good that as you said, your approach is kind of what's going to be best for the situation and the dog in front. Because I think sometimes, you know, people do become a bit um, 
over enthusiastic on one or the other yeah. and then that becomes the main focus and you know we both know that passive indications look pretty cool when you've got oh, the dog, you find something yeah, yeah they're like the sexy scent work but if you're in a shelter you know the that does require slightly more pre-training doesn't it than the yeah. dog finding something picking it up like it naturally would and then bringing it back to you to have an interaction with so i think you're right like i definitely use passive indications in shelter particularly for dogs where we're looking for a bit more sort of self-control or lowering that arousal rather than (laughs) sort of building um but active is just going to get you on the ground a bit quicker isn't it generally speaking yeah absolutely and it's about I, i always kind of view nose work um, as I said to you earlier, is that for any dog, it's either a hobby or it's a lifestyle. And I want them to enjoy that as much as possible. And it's very easy for uh, me as a trainer to go into a situation and go like, well, we're going to do it really formally and have it look really sexy. But some of the dogs I work with, like even to this day, don't have an indication. Like they will do all of the elements of passive scent work, but they find the coin. There's um, there's a dog I work with uh, online in Australia, actually. I'm obsessed with her because she finds the coin and we started off trying to teach her a, a freeze indication, kind of that nose hover. And she finds a coin and she just wiggles. Like she disengages <laughs> from the coin. Oh, my God, she's not looking at the coin. But she just wiggles so violently. And it's like, I don't want to train that out. Like that's such a lovely, enthusiastic kind of vibe. And so whenever I'm thinking about nose work, it is always about is what will make the dog enjoy it the most. And if we can get a really sexy retrieve or a really sexy freeze or sit or down, awesome, because that makes us feel good. That's quite reinforcing for us. But the, the dog doesn't really care. And, you know, on that same flip side, there's some dogs I work with who, God, they adore, they adore their passive indication. There's a couple of collies I work with who that downs like, like bam there's a couple terriers actually i find terriers weirdly um really enjoy passive indications too in my experience they really like them like some of them will literally they'll get near their scent and they will just zoom in they're like it's here um but yeah i think that when you're strapped for time and when you are in a busy shelter environment the benefits are not going to be lost if it's an active indication. And again, the benefits aren't going to be lost if it is a bit of food or something else. We can talk a lot as well about coin indications too, because that's a skill that I teach. Even if we aren't really going to focus on passive indications a whole lot, the actual act of finding a coin and and indicating on it, I teach for a whole host of reasons. And I think would, and I, I know for a fact would apply really well to shelter environments, because again, um, for those of you that don't know, listening in with scent work, scent work with sense kind of takes some prep work. Like you've got to you've got to set it up, and you've got to kind of have a kill in the jar, and it's a whole host of contamination. Then you've got to put the scent out, and there's a whole host of things that are awesome and excellent, but take time. Uh, whereas something like the coin work that I get a lot of my scent work dogs to start on, at least, uh, you need a coin. But yeah, it's all about kind of accessibility from a time perspective and also enjoyment from the dog's perspective. Brilliant. Yeah, there's two things I definitely want to pick up from that. So first of all, yeah, let's talk about that coin indication. How would you go about introducing that? Sure. So first of all, we need to talk about why coins, right? Um, because whenever I say this to people in those work classes, when I when I introduce the concept, I always get at least one person giving me a really weird look. The two reasons, oh, there's three reasons. Uh, the first is that most of the time we have a coin on our person. And as I said, it's about accessibility. Um, I can't ask 
or it would put more pressure on one of my students to take their dogs into the vets, to the groomers, et cetera, have a kill in a jar full of cloves, put one of those articles out, right? That's prep time. Whereas they can just whip a coin out and they can play this game wherever they are. The second is that um, apparently at British coins, so are the most consistently made from a, from a, from a kind of metal perspective, I guess. Um, so they use worldwide stuff my one of my scent work instructors she's in america and she always recommends kind of british pennies and things like that so that's another reason that i think is kind of cool third reason is that it's really difficult i know it sounds really silly but when we're thinking about um searching for a coin it's it can't obviously it's a bit like a needle in a haystack and we set it up so it's easy for the dog but if your dog can find a coin even if it's in a, a small space they're going to be able to find anything else and that's good for competition work but it's also incredibly good from a confidence point of view, because whenever you do any other type of nose work games, searching for food, scattering food, things like that, the behavior of searching is so fluent because of how much work they put in on a micro level to find that coin that it makes anything else you do search related, sniffing related. And also, in my opinion, processing related when dogs are trying to figure out what's going on in the environment so much smoother and more effective. So. That's why we use coins. How we teach it, um, when I tend to focus on coin indications uh, and, and the coin game, I tend to focus on kind of a nose freeze and a nose hover like we were talking about earlier. But you could do something similar with a sit or a down. It's just a slightly different behavior. And how you would teach that is that you would have a coin. Obviously, you would have five to ten treats. I tend to recommend hard treats that bounce because if you have treats that are crumbly like cheese or they kind of break up, it can throw off the flow. Um, and you need uh, 30 seconds, maybe. Um, and I would probably recommend being sat down as well if if the dog can cope with that because some dogs find that stressful, but standing up is fine. Um, and effectively, what you could do, a really good game to play in the kennel, is that you pop the coin down and some dogs go over to it straight away. They're curious. Some dogs won't. That's fine. How you pop the coin down as well really matters um, because some dogs, you drop something, they're like, oh, my God. So how you would do that would depend on the dog. But coin's on the ground now um, and you drop a treat on it. So, and by drop a treat, I don't mean place, because this is the mistake that people make, because dogs will focus on your hand. I mean, from a decent height, just drop the treat on it. And most dogs go, okay, there's a treat, and they go, and they snuff it around, and they, they eat it. Then once they've eaten that treat, another treat appears. Again, aiming for the coin. So we want to be close enough to drop the treats on the coin that it's not kind of bouncing off wildly, but still high enough that it's a drop. So the treat appears again on the coin. The dog goes, oh, okay, and they go and eat that, and the treat appears again. And again and again the idea quite simply is the dog's head doesn't come up so all we're looking for is that dog's head to be able to stay down if they have time to look up and make eye contact with you we're moving too slowly we've run through 10 treats of that so treat 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 dogs having a great time awesome stuff and then we pick the coin up and we move on with our day and for my nose work students i get them to do that three or four times a day for 30 seconds no more doesn't need to be anything else and all that's doing is that one Dogs build a really strong association when you get that coin out because they go, oh, my God, it's the food thing. And you, I call it the Labrador wiggle because Labrador is always wiggling. You're looking for that change in behavior. You bring that coin out. And also, on a small side note, how amazing is it to have something that you can just pull out that makes your dog universally happy without necessarily blowing their brains fizz-wise? It's really, really cool in that way. And we'll talk about that in a second. But coin out. 30 seconds so for a shelter environment you could do it once or twice a day just for 30 seconds in out in out 
And all we're looking for in this early stages is just the dog's head not coming up and building a nice association with the coin. What that then begins to look at as they become fluent with the game, as we're dropping those treats, is the dog starts anticipating that treat appearing. So what do dogs do when they're anticipating something? They freeze. And so what you start finding is that the dogs will stop and stare at the coin. And the food appears and they eat the food and then they go back and they find the coin again. So we have a mini search there. If you think about a treat rolling off to the side, the dog goes and eats it. And then the nose comes back over and repeat and repeat and repeat until what you're able to do is drop that coin down. The dog goes, okay, and they just go and they freeze over it for a couple of seconds. Um, I'm a big fan of um, distraction over duration with something like this. So I would much rather have a dog that can do an indication for five seconds around a city or a really busy area than a dog that can do a 30 second indication in a quiet space especially for a shelter environment where there's going to be lots of stuff going on so what that would look like and what we i would say at that point is we take that coin on the road so that coin would come to uh the exercise area it would be the hallway of the kennels it would be wherever you know wherever there was time and space to do it for those 30 seconds until that dog was consistently kind of staring at that coin and then we would uh, kind of a bit more advanced. We'd look at putting that behavior on cue. And then once we had that behavior on cue, we would start turning it into little searches. So that would look like having the coin, for example. Um, I play this game uh, a lot with the physio dogs. You'll have the coin. You'll be out in kind of an exercise area, grassy area. You'll have the coin. You'll have hold of their harness or collar. You'll throw the coin. You'll delay. You'll give them that, that cue that you end up picking, search, seek, whatever. And it's a short distance away. They go off and they just start searching for the coin. They find the coin. The moment they find the coin, food appears on the coin again. You run over and you throw the food down on it. So that's a variation that works. The other variation, especially in their kennel, you could bring them out of their kennel. You could throw the coin into the kennel and then cue them back in and they go and they have to do a little search and find the kennel as well. Um, especially if you say throw like the coin on their bed or something like that, because I tend to find that if they have something soft to search, they prefer that a little bit more than hard surfaces for coin work. Um, so that's another easy way of doing that. So that, that would kind of be on its most basic level from a kind of time constraint point of view from a, we want to use this passive indication for that work to build up and how we uh, teach the verbal cue as well because i didn't actually throw that and it's really simple so you would do one of those coin indication exercises for 30 seconds the difference is that when you drop the treats the dog at this point is already freezing they've got that nose hover over the coin you drop the treat the dog moves to eat the treat and then just before or as they're coming back excuse me over the coin we would say that keyword. So let's say we're going to use search. The dog has just eaten the treat. As they're coming back over, you'd say search. And by the time you've said search, they've gone back and they freezed over the coin. A treat appears again. They eat the treat. And again, just before they go search, and then they do that. So we just build the verbal cue into the exercise that's already doing it until we can pop the coin down or throw the coin away and say search. And the dog goes, aha, I know what that means. Search means I indicate. And then they go and they do that. So we, we teach the indication first and then build it up. Um, the indication itself as well, I have used very successfully for cooperative care and grooming procedures too, um, because uh, cooperative care is a really interesting one for me because I think we spend a lot of time trying to work on building positive associations with the uh, with the kind of grooming tools and, and the veterinary tools and things, of course, as we should. Um but man, I've seen some dogs' perception of that completely change when they have just something to focus on that they really love and really like. Because again, it's just a stationary behavior. If you think about it, just staring is just standing still um, and they can opt out of that as well. So 
yes i think that made sense <laughs> yeah definitely i absolutely love that as a tool for for all the reasons that you said really like having it so simple to do um but also yeah to have that thing that means so much to the dog that you can just whip out of your pocket at any time and get them focusing on something you know especially for our reactive dogs or physio dogs like you've mentioned already speaking of reactive dogs i don't know if you can hear uh, the little dog downstairs so hopefully that's not too annoying but um yeah i think i definitely feel like listeners are going to be going and raiding the donation boxes for, for coins. <laughs> perfect the other good thing with it as well tom is that when we think about introducing uh, potential adopters as well, it's a really good game for them to play too. Obviously, you need to be aware of body language and not put any dog on any pressure. But some dogs really do like just being able to have this tool in their toolbox where, you know, you can bring new adopters into the space and the adopter could put out a coin that smells like them. Or if the uh, the dog has bonded with a specific member of staff the member of staff can go pop coin out and do a little search as an introduction method so there's a whole host of variety and then when that dog does go back with that new adopter to their new wonderful home um the adopt has a game that they can play with their dog that has such a strong positive association without any prior setup it's just a coin but man when you see a dog when you've done it properly and it's not a very hard thing to do to condition the coin the joy on a dog's face even for the dogs that have a little bit of trauma even if the dogs that kind of sometimes struggle to express those positive emotions you see them either get excited or they relax because it's consistent and it's safe there's not a lot of when we're doing the kind of real basic level because some dogs i work with don't really move on from what we've just spoken about there's really small searches um that's so predictable they know what to do. And when you have dogs that overthink, when you have dogs with trauma, just giving them something simple that always pays, that always wins. And the rules are so consistent all of the time. Everything else in the world doesn't have to be consistent. But this game is consistent, can make the world a difference to them. Definitely. And I think that fits in really nicely as well with the other area that I was thinking this is really useful for where we've got dogs who may be less confident going into new environments or going into certain places. Like you've already mentioned the vet, mm. the vet suite, or if you've got a meeting area at, at the center, like having that game to set them up for success is, is just super important and useful, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Being able to said have that tool in your toolbox without a lot of prior prep that you can take into a groomers or a vets or, you know, whatever the situation might be to build those positive associations. I've even used it actually as a really um I've not done this a lot, I'll be very honest, but it's something I've experimented with, with um conditioning dogs to certain pieces of equipment like muzzles. So they'll have their muzzle put on and then they'll go and do some coin searches and then the muzzle comes off. And that has worked incredibly well is building a positive association with a muzzle um, alongside all the other stuff you would do. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it it's when we're thinking about kind of anxiety in dogs, especially with environments, a lot of that is because the environment pre- predicts unpredictability. It's not stable. There's stuff going on all the time. It's changing and that we can have those negative associations. And that coin is like that one candle in the dark for them because it is predictable. It is safe. The rules never really change. Even if that coin is hidden somewhere, when they hear that cue, they know what they got to do. They got to go and they got to find the coin. And the benefit of that is that the rest of the world then becomes illuminated. Those associations are made. And when you get 
Um, I'm staff members at these, but I know we're talking a lot about the vets and the groomers, but when you get them hiding coins or when you even get them, some of my students have uh, have such a good relationship with the vet that the vet before they'll do an exam will do a little coin indication game on like the examination table with the dog where the vet is delivering the treats. And even though that is the kind of base level of where we start, right, that foundation level for so many dogs that's enough. And that's what they thrive on. And that's another thing I will say in general, as we're talking, Tom, is that it's so important that uh, to keep kind of reinforcing the point that look, I love all the sexy stuff. I think it's awesome when my students, dogs can go and, you know, search a mile radius and find a person or they can work through a town center or they can track for a coin or they can search for a coin in a, a warehouse or whatever the really cool things we get up to are. Um, but though those things are visually satisfying for us, but you don't need that to get the results of having a happy, well-adjusted a dog that can regulate themselves. You, you don't need that level of advanced skill. You can get that exact same things from finding food, hunting for a toy, playing this coin game. It's all about the dog and all about their individual needs. And I think that's just an important point to keep reinforcing because... So one of the one of the key barriers that I hear people say when we're talking about scent work is, oh, my dog can't do what those dogs do. Or, oh, my dog can't do what they, you know, I've seen some of you, I get this sometimes where people say, I've seen some of the videos of your dogs, um, you know, working through a town center or, or playing search and rescue or doing a really cool search on a statue or something or a plane or whatever. Um, I don't think my dogs could do that. And I'm like, your dog definitely can. Like we can definitely get them there. But even if they couldn't, like, you're still going to get all of those benefits and your dog will be grateful for it. Um, so, yeah. I absolutely love, yeah, all of what you've just said. And I think that muzzle idea is really great and one that I think I'm definitely going to take forward because often that's where we get stuck with muzzle training, isn't it? The dog's kind of comfortable holding their nose in. They're kind of okay with the straps. And then you take your hands away and then the dog's like, what oh. do I do now? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, being able to do a couple of searches, then introduce the piece of equipment, which you've already, you know, done the pre-work for, and then give that search cue again. Hopefully, you know, that's going to get that movement and build that really positive association. So yeah, I, ha I hadn't thought of that before. That's really amazing. So often there's kind of this debate, um, and again, this is more in the kind of sport world, but that idea of, you know, should you help the dog out or take the dog in the room where you know the item is, you let them go and they do all the work themselves. What's your take on that? Uh, it's a really interesting question. So I am a big believer that nose work is about promoting independence. So my goal is that I would like the dog to be able to independently solve a problem with the understanding that support is there if needed. So what I like to do is set the environment up as much as possible so the dog can have success, but also teach the dog that if they ask for help, it is given. So to give a little bit of an example of that, when I am playing, and I can give an example from a workshop I gave today, very early on with the um when i'm doing man trailing so on lead search and rescue i play a game called the split road game which is where i find kind of a split off in the road and i will get the person who's going to hide for the dog um to pick one of the routes and they will go and they'll hide in such a way that the handler can see where the where that person is but the dog can't so they might hide in a bush and so their head will be kind of visible but the dog from their perspective couldn't see and the dog will then go and be cued and they'll go and they'll work towards that area some dogs go the correct route immediately 
they go to the crossroads they go the correct way immediately they find the person being party some don't right because it's a search and they'll head off down that little path and what i tend to say is that if the dog is working hard and the dog is working and they are thinking we don't interrupt them they're trying to work it out themselves it would be really really rude if they were close to a breakthrough and we jump in to be like actually buddy i'm gonna show you where it is because they're working and they're doing it however in that space some of the dogs will go and they'll go hmm i'm not sure and they'll make kind of direct eye contact with with the handler with their caregiver at which point i will tell the caregiver take a little step to the left if the person will left, or take a little step to the right um i don't necessarily like requeuing a lot but some dogs need that as well some dogs really need the feedback too this is another point i'll get onto in a second um but that little step to the left or right the dog goes okay, maybe I'll check there out. And they'll go and then they'll go and they'll find the person. So it's not about helping the dog in terms of making it easier per se. It's about setting the dog up so independently they can solve the problem until they can't. And they go, I need a bit of help here, mum or dad. And we go, cool, okay, here's your little bit of help. And then we build up from there. So I'm not really a huge fan of providing lots and lots of help because if we've done it correctly if we've set the environment up correctly the dog should be able to find it but sometimes dogs struggle sometimes they're having a bad day at which point yeah it's fine there is a caveat with that though tom in that there are some dogs that have had lots of training and lots of work and lots of feedback who you put them in an environment where you give them none and they can't cope and by none, I don't even necessarily mean that you're not engaging with them, you're not conversing with them, as in you're just not curing them. I see this a lot with dogs uh, when we first start doing tracking, where they will start working and they'll work and they'll work and they'll work. You'll see the kind of cogs turning in their head and they'll go, my mum hasn't asked me anything yet. And they'll kind of turn and look and be like, am I still? Uh, you want? Okay, I'm just going to keep going. And it takes them a little bit of time to build that independence. So if I have a dog who is struggles with that lack of kind of hand-holding, I suppose, then yes, we will build the hand-holding into the game. And I will say, all right, buddy, you ready? Here you go, check this out. Or I will make it obvious with my body language or whatever it is. But I tend to err more on the side of build their independence, build their confidence, um, but teaching them as well that they can cue us the help if they need it, because there's nothing worse. Nothing makes me more die more inside than a dog who has tried so hard. And they then give their handler, their caregiver, a cue being like, I need a bit of help now. And the handler goes, well, I can't give any help at all. Because that's when you start to see the issues arise. So, no, it's it's I would say 80 percent. They're independent. We let them figure it out. But the moment that they say we need help, we will offer them that, even if it's the barest hint. Um, because, again, as I said, we're, we're, you know, uh, for competition work, you could sit there and go, well, we need to figure it out completely. But like the only competition a lot of the dogs I work with is surviving in life. So I just want to make that as easy as possible for them. Yeah, I think that fits really well into the stuff we've already talked about, building confidence and having that relationship there. Because actually, even if you're not, actively interacting with that dog them knowing that they've got that option of being like hey can i have some help is still building that relationship and it is still you guys working together even if you don't you know you're not pointing at the wall or the bumper of the car or whatever area that you're searching so i think that's great i think another thing that i really like about scent work and and i had this example today is 
what it can actually tell us about how the dog is feeling, like how the dog is searching and how their nose is going on and what you can hear is is a really great indicator of, of that dog's arousal or emotional state, isn't it? So today we were working with a dog who's dog reactive. And when we first started working, we were doing some simple sort of searching for cheese in grass at a distance of the dog. And to start with, the dog's like hardly even sniffing, just going straight in for the food. And then, you know, the longer we did it, at the distance we were at, you started to hear the dog sniffing. And then I was like, right, cool. We're on it. Let's move a little bit closer. And, oh, yeah. you know, I think it gives us so much so much information about the situation as well as all of the benefits we've already talked about. Yeah. Oh, my God. So I, I, I firmly believe that you can tell so much about a dog by how they're working a scent problem, whether that is them yeah, tracking for a squirrel, whether that is them searching for an item we've popped out, searching for a person, or just sniffing in general right around the trigger, like, like a dog that's a bit dog reactive. One thing that I've spoken about at length everywhere, um, but there's there's a concept that I employ in classes um, called the in-between, which is effectively where... If you imagine that, and I will use the example of a coin search here. So imagine that we are in a space, we're in a public area, and let's say we have a dog reactive dog, like the example that you've just given. So I might get one of the people in class to go pop one of their coins out in an area, and then we'll take the dog over to begin that search. The dog knows that there's a search happening. They figured that out. So as we're walking up, they're processing everything in the environment even though they're using their nose they're preempting themselves they go right there's going to be a coin out i'm going to go find it so they're kind of sniffing around and they're processing the environment they might even be a bit cagey a bit unsure but they know the game right it's that predictable game where we find the coin so they go and they find the coin and then when they're sniffing more intensely to hunt for that coin they're also processing everything else a bit more intensely right so they're looking around and they're checking and they're going it's not that scent it's not the scent of that person it's not the scent of that dog it's not the scent of that bird sniffing 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 find the coin. Huge party, massive reward, well done, and we pick that coin up. Then what we have to do is we have to walk back. So we walk back past those things again, those dogs, those people, whatever. So we're processing for a third time. And then we get, and I tend to have a rule if the dog can cope, is that after a search, they stay out for a short period of time to mooch around. One, because some dogs figure out that if you don't do that, that if you pop them away immediately after a search, the game ends. So they'll kind of spend a bit more time searching just to kind of inflate their time out. And, but also again, to give them that time to just stop and process one mistake that I think we can view with scent work and, and nose work, especially is that nose work can sometimes be focused on as something that teaches a dog to process while working, which is awesome. But I also want a dog to be able to process when they're not working. So we will spend some time just being out. And that dog is then able to look at the people, look at the dogs. Again, still using their nose. We're still in that state of mind to do that. So for, say, you know, the trigger of another dog across the road or something like that, or a cyclist or children playing football or whatever it is, they've had to process that trigger four times with four levels of intensity within those series of activities. And what you tend to find is that when a dog has done that and can do that, their ability to regulate themselves, their threshold and their resilience skyrockets. Because most of the time when we're thinking about behavior modification, it's very much there's a thing and we process the thing and then the thing goes away, which is awesome. And some dogs need that. But for the dogs that I work with, being able to put them in a 
consistent state of safe exposure with varying levels of intensity with a game that's super predictable with people that's super predictable too the handler and their caregiver super predictable when they play this game because they know those i'm always predictable because i'm always the guy who makes them find the weird stuff in, in the woods all of those levels of predictability scaffold their level of safety which means as the world changes around them they can cope with it and then you start to see that bleed into every aspect of their life. They can cope with builders. They can cope with people walking past the car. They can cope with settling in the car. They can cope with other dogs in their space. Like a majority of my classes, um, oh, my God, three quarters of the dogs in those classes are reactive, anxious, nervous, people, dogs, whatever. Um, it's very rare that I'll just get, you know, a spaniel, <laughs> just like, hey, I want to find stuff. Um but all of those skills are learned within that setting and within just that act of even if we just did that and there was no variation, even if the searches for the coins were the exact same forever, that four levels of processing, that walk back, that in-between moment, powerful stuff. And the dog can go, cool, I've processed now. And they just settle. And again, that looks different for every dog. Some dogs settle by going, next one. And that this tends to be the shepherds where they're like, next, ready, let's go again. And they go and they do it and they're very serious about it. Boom, 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 find the thing. Okay, back. Um, and some of them are like the spaniels who kind of just wiggle a bit and they're like, yeah, and they're looking around. And for some of the more stoic, like overseas rescues, it's literally just, and some of the bull breeds are right with too, it's just watching. And they just watch the world go by while they're kind of chilling until they go away and then they have a nap and then they get out ready to do it again. So yeah yeah i absolutely love that i'm a big big believer and a big advocate for yeah, letting dogs watch and process and i think often particularly when we know our dogs reactive or worried about a particular thing we're quite keen to draw that attention away and i often say oh just wait let's just see and i think what what you've just described produces a environment which hopefully is naturally going to allow that to happen a little bit more anyway, which is yeah. absolutely brilliant. I think we've covered some really great stuff tonight, but the last question that we always ask our guest to kind of summarize what we've talked about is what would be your free top tips for simplifying scent work? Oh, I love that from a scent work perspective. Um, first thing is focus on the searching, not what they're searching for. Look, Brilliant. if you've got limited time, if your dog loves Monster Munch, I don't know, whatever it might be, have them search for Monster Munch. Who cares? It's still the same game. Um, very um, distraction over duration. So if you are playing a game, whether it's hunting for toys or hunting for food, and you're looking to make it more difficult, don't necessarily make the searches longer. Have them in a slightly different space or have them in an area where there's slightly more of a distraction. What that is will be very dog dependent. Um, and three, never be afraid to approach a problem from a nose perspective. So a little tidbit that I'll give you, and I've told this story before, when I was working with a... I was working with a standard poodle and he hated this husky across the road, despised this husky across the road. Um, and we were, to be honest, really struggling with getting this dog to get over this hatred of this husky. And in the end, we asked the husky owner, look, bit of a weird question, could you rub this towel on your... Oh, no, actually, I think we asked them for, like, vet bed. That was it. We asked them for vet bed. And we were like, could you just have the dog sleep on this and then give it to us? And they did. And we presented it to the poodle in the poodle's back garden and the poodle growled and i went oh okay so from a visual perspective 
we're fighting a losing battle. So let's start with the scent perspective. And literally, they just did item swaps where we just gave the husky, and we did the same thing if the, if the poodles' items were given to the husky. And that's how we made that breakthrough. And that's how we actually stopped them trying to kill each other across the road is without that, I genuinely think we would have either been stuck and plateaued um, or we never would have resolved the issue. So never be afraid to take a look at a problem like we were talking about with the muzzle conditioning or when we were talking about um, that, that example there of building association with dogs or people. Never be afraid to look at the problem and go, can we use scent to solve it? And worst case scenario, it doesn't work but your dog now enjoys finding a glove, which is a skill that you have or finding a coin or, or whatever it might be. And best case scenario, it provides that scaffolding that we've talked about, which helps with other stuff in the shelter. And as always, um, easy to implement and super accessible. Yeah, I think they're three absolutely fantastic tips that people are going to be going away with. And I think you're right. I really like that idea of using the nose as the problem solving tool. And, and yeah, a couple of Probably last year now, we had a, a Frenchie who was dog reactive who yeah. had limited eyesight. Okay. And yeah, that's exactly what we did. We started with scent because that's probably, if you can't see very well, that's probably his biggest indicator that there is another dog there. So absolutely great example. Well, thank you so much for your time this evening. Before you head off and we, and we give you back your freedom, just let us know where people can find out more about what you do. Um, I know you do workshops all over the place, don't you? So if they're interested in joining. Yeah, absolutely. So best places to find me. Um, I've got two websites. So I've got my www.thedorsetdogtrainer.com uh, because uh, I'm based in Dorset. Um, and I've also got www.thedorsetdogtrainer.com anxiousdogacademy.com which is my kind of platform my service for specifically anxious dogs and, and dogs with trauma uh, the reason i bring that one up specifically is that in the new year in january this is exclusive by the way tom so i hope you're excited oh, that is exciting i'm launching uh, i've always done all my nose work classes but i've been developing a curriculum for classes that i'm calling sniff to safety which are effectively a is a nose work course designed specifically for behavioral modification help for anxious dogs fizzy dogs nervous dogs so it's brand new stuff that i've not taught before um and is specifically dedicated to using nose work to help behavior modification in some way shape or form you can also find me as well on facebook at jack fenton the dorset dog trainer where i will be talking about that course and all the various other bits and pieces and as tom you said i do workshops kind of all across the country so uh i i go to plymouth quite a lot i have a wonderful relationship with some down there and i'm hoping to do more in-person workshops for different companies in different places um in the future so yeah that's where i would say and you can also when you go onto my website uh, both of the websites actually the dorset dog trainer one and the anxious dog academy one i have two email lists one's my general one on the dorset dog trainer.com and the other one is for for dogs who are specifically anxious so you can subscribe to them and get stuff straight to your inbox if you'd like as well brilliant yeah i'll put all of that in the show notes and i'll definitely be looking at keeping an eye out for um workshops near me because i know i just recently missed one in bristol so uh, hoping yeah. to hoping to get it to one soon so yeah. yeah thanks again so much for your time tonight i think it's been absolutely amazing i've really enjoyed it amazing. thank you so much tom really enjoyed it thanks for listening to this week's episode of simplifying shelter behavior don't forget to like and follow the podcast for future updates if you're interested in hearing more free tips and tricks related to working in an animal shelter environment you can follow us on facebook at simplifying shelter behaviour.